The first followers of Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad, were Khadija, a woman, and Bilal, the enslaved man, the black enslaved man that was manumitted, right? So these are stories that I've been told as part of my heritage. The idea of people mixing and melding where your economic status, your racial status isn't supposed to matter, right? To me, that is the ideal of what this faith is supposed to be doing. And the faith fails because of people and politics, but that's not the faith. If life's a mystery, who done it? Welcome to Ye Gods, I'm Scott Carter. I met today's guest, Nayira Huck, when I produced HBO's Real Time and she was a valued guest. She's worked at the Obama White House in national security, economic policy, and was a spokesperson at both the state and treasury departments. She's become not only a journalist and host at Black News Channel, Sirius XM, and a frequent guest and sub-host for my friend John Fugelsang's podcast, but she's also become a producer working with Steven Soderbergh. She's also the first Ye Gods guest who is a Muslim American. Islam is a religion I don't know enough about, and I hope to learn more about today. Welcome, Naira. It is always a delight to see you. I am so glad to be having this conversation with you, Scott. Well, thank you very much. And I just want to start at the beginning of your parents. Your father, if I'm correct, is a doctor. Your mother, public school teacher. They immigrated from Pakistan to Staten Island. Why Staten Island? And what were they hoping to find when they came here? So the Staten Island piece is a much easier answer in how they ended up there. And that's, you know, you follow the job and you buy a house where you can afford it, right? And that's still where how we make decisions today and how they made decisions nearly 50 years ago. But how they ended up in the United States was, on one hand, years of effort, both of them very studious from you know middle-class family backgrounds at a time when there was no middle class in Pakistan. And they knew that education would get them out. Uh, whatever, out of what is still a discussion that we have with them. But it got my dad a residency in the United States shortly after the time that the civil rights movement helped get immigration reform and allowed for people from South Asia to suddenly not be considered undesirable, which was an actual term in federal law for people of Indian descent. Suddenly, they were wanted. And they were wanted because there was a shortage of doctors and expertise with the Vietnam War. And my dad was at the top of his medical school class. And they're like, great, grab this guy up, offer him a contract, and let's bring him over here. And he had the choice of Georgia, Michigan, and New York City. And it was a no-brainer for him that he said, like, of course, New York City. But that hospital also happened to be the hospital at the time that had installed the first pacemaker. And he was very interested in it. And so he arrives, this 20-something-year-old doctor who doesn't know really anything else about life and um, goes all into medicine and his training, working 72-hour shifts in a hospital where everybody is largely Jewish in an Orthodox Hasidic Jewish community. And he finds himself to be oddly comfortable. There's a whole cohort of immigrants from um, India, Pakistan, parts of Southeast Asia, and then a bunch of Jewish people who also have some of the cultural and social and food restrictions that he had been observing growing up. And people don't tend to see those as the commonalities. So his first American experience and what he passed on to us 
was that sense of commonality and faith, even in the minority context, like two minorities finding things in common. Uh, but he did feel a little isolated and, um, you know, speaks a different language, speaks with a heavy accent and had been wanting to meet somebody and was introduced to my mom. They exchanged letters for a year and they got married the first day they met. And within two weeks, she flies off and lands in the United States and they're building a life together. And so they're building this life reliant on each other, what they have in common that they're still learning about each other and this spirit of entrepreneurship. She was educated also because she's going to become a teacher when she gets here. Yeah, so my mom did her master's at uh, an all-women's school, and this is where she learned how to use a smart turn of phrase with studying Milton and Shakespeare. Her English language skills are, are quite on point, um, particularly when it comes for the, the sense of dramatic and flair. And my uh, dad's sense of working within science, and both of them having come from families that were deeply enmeshed in the Islamic tradition in South Asia. And I say South Asia, not Pakistan, because that generation, my parents, grandparents, were part of a India that was colonial, then post-colonial, and then had fractured along religious lines. So they have the very deep understanding of religious tribalism, how the trauma gets carried across generations and so I, I tie all of that together and you know, the fact that my parents have been married for more than 50 years, living in Staten Island, they were the only brown people anywhere. They're surrounded by, you know, my dad's workplace, which is all Orthodox Jews or where I grew up, which is Roman Catholic. So they, they have this very interesting sense of where you find commonality while accepting differences, but in the back of their minds is still this idea that you may have to hunker down and separate and just be your own people, right? So that idea of what a, that fracturing, like, we you know, we talk about civil war in America now, I'm like, this is, they have that as part of their family experience in a way that I don't think we, my generation truly understands growing up in America. So when you grew up, the, there was no Muslim neighborhood in Staten Island that you were a part of. What, was there a community where you all worshipped together? There was. Um, they slowly, through word of mouth, found a place to go worship on Fridays, because that's the day for Muslims to go in congregational prayer. And um, my mom, pregnant, I guess, with me at the time, she told me, met a lady there uh, who her family was from India. They were Muslims living in India, and they connected, and they started, you know, chatting, and then she met some other women, and they created this network of women who then created a network of children that they wanted to raise with a sense of history, a sense of faith, a sense of this is a place you can be. These are people who are like you. Maybe when you're at school, you're different, but this is where you can have people like you. I got a lot from that, but, you know, we were... For what my mom used to say, she wanted us to have, and this is in Urdu, which is my family's language, or which means strong roots. Strong roots, but you're not sure where the tree is going to be, right? Like each, she said this too. She told me when I had kids, each kid is their own person. You think it's the same seed, all the stuff you're putting in, but you don't know what tree they're going to be. Prune and take care of that tree 
But like you're not going to treat an apple tree the same way you would an oak tree. They grow differently. And that idea was what, you know, that she gave me her version of that. And now I'm figuring out my version of that for the what trees are my kids going to be. Right. So growing up, what are your first memories of religion and how did it make sense or or not to you? I knew there was this thing called Islam. I knew there was a person called a prophet who had many important things to say. In this case, it was Muhammad. I knew that there were rituals that we had in common. These were rituals that connected us to each other, but also connected us to a higher power. In Arabic, Allah means God. So in English, we will say God, but Christians in the Arab world also say Allah. And so I, I knew that. And I very early got a sense of there are things my parents do and believe that not everybody else in this Sunday school or in this community do and believe. So this sense of your family and your choices and your version of going through the world is not like everybody else's, for me, was very early and very deep. I, I never felt that the Muslim community in Staten Island or writ large was going to be exactly the way I or my family was going to be. But we had lots of things in common. And I was deeply encouraged to continue many of those things. I also was given a very, very much a sense of there, there is a God. We don't need an intercession. We don't need anybody else to communicate between us and this being. The being is not a man or a woman. It is a being. That is the fundamental principle of Islam. La ilaha illallah. There is no God but God. There are gender neutral pronouns used for God in Arabic. And Muhammad Rasulullah means, and the prophet we follow is Muhammad. He is the last. He is the last one. So it's a connection to the Abrahamic tradition, recognizing the tradition. And this happens to be the last one. So it is the sense of like, I can take and understand and take things from Judaism and Christianity where, you know, we have this other piece of this puzzle. And those are the stories, right? The story of where you fit in history. So it comes from where I fit in relation to race and colonialism and culture, but also a spiritual history to draw on in time of need. That was very much how my parents, I saw them develop it and also how they would talk to us about it. Like this is, you can turn to God in need. God is there for you. To please God, to please God, there are certain things that God would like. That was a very interesting piece to unpack. Do you have a sense of the world's attitude toward your community? This is a time in 1980s culture, particularly like public school culture in New York City, of multiculturalism. You are unique. Everyone is special, right? Like that was the type of language that was being taught to children in elementary school. And I'm like, okay, great. I fit right in that. Cool. Some of this idea of otherness, though, did, I would say, I would say junior high, because that's around the time where I think some of my friends at school were supported and encouraged in sexuality and how that starts. And the, what I was told was effectively, um, yeah, no, that's for marriage. These are natural feelings, but that's for marriage. And 
We do that because we are Muslim. I, I mean, I guess at some point I connected that. My mom never said God will be mad at you, but at some point you make that connection. And so I, junior high was, and you know, early high school was a balancing act of really trying to understand my own body, my own self in context and with my family and a much broader community. I wasn't told, by the way, that there is a rich tradition throughout the Middle East and South Asia of understanding faith and sexuality. Like it just was not what my parent cho parents chose and probably not what they were given either. So when you start to learn about the world outside of what you're given, like your brain kind of explodes. Your family, when you were a child, did you guys ever go back to Pakistan? And if so, and you're there, what do you make of this? This might have been the world that you would have grown up in. What were your, what impressions do you have from that time period? This may be something other children of immigrants have in common, especially if you're born here or came here in the United States young, that sense of, wow, if I just circumstance and chance, right? Like my dad could have not gotten the visa, you know, could not have ended up here. And I, my parents would save up everything to go to Pakistan in the summer. And so my mom also raised us to be bilingual. So I, I felt very comfortable in language. I felt very comfortable in my grandfather's house in the, you know, and playing there and, and seeing, you know, we would go and be like, oh, let's go ride a horse. Let's go to this market and eat these foods. And just like, it was, it was a wonderful, fun culture and, you know, reconnecting. So I, I felt like it belonged to me in some way. And I felt definitely like I had to try to continue that in some way. This idea of the separation, the physical separation from the land. And you still want to maintain roots, like that idea of strong roots. The physical separation land means that you have to intentionally, intellectually, and spiritually remain connected in some way. And that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. But I didn't recognize it as pressure at the time. And I still do see it as a huge gift to have that. But I remember seeing kids on the street in front of my grandmother's house begging. And I would see people not give these kids money. And like routine, we're talking like every other corner, right? Like it's the confrontation with poverty in South Asia is you can't escape it. If you go out in the world, it is there. And what it does is because it's there and it's constant, people develop an insensitivity to it just to function. Because you just can't live your life constantly feeling like everything is falling apart around you. And it does something to you as a society when that's when you're living on the edge all the time, when you can't trust a system to take care of you. And that's a big part of, as an adult, unpacking my parents' story. Like I could have easily been any one of those kids on the street. And I spent, I would say my life intellectually and tr translated professionally into figuring out how that happens. How does that happen? And this would interest me because, you know, I've heard you say that your parents instilled the value of, of public service. Mm -hmm. And not only have you gone into government work and advocacy, but that also your career has taken you to a lot of crisis places, Afghanistan and South Asia and the Middle East and the Korean Peninsula and the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's almost like some of the dichotomy in people's circumstances that presented itself to you early on. And there's something inside of you that's still driving and reacting to all of that and wishing to make a change. Mm-hmm. 
you know, my my two my siblings and I was like, okay, like if you were to give yourself a two or three sentence description or two or three word rather, two or three word description of who you are. And I was like very quickly I said, I was like, oh, words matter and um, make change. And they they both go, yep, that's you. That's you. You have already used the word entrepreneurial and there is something inside of you that may see injustice, want to make change, words, use words. There's something in you for both those things. But what there also seems to be is a confidence in, in be, being able, being capable, having the agency to make significant change in, in, in the problem you're dealing with. It, it's a very strong orientation for justice, which is different than peace. There's a reason why marchers used to say, no justice, no peace, and why post-colonial movements have been struggling to figure out which one they're going to wait. Because justice means that you are correcting for previous wrongs. Peace means you are just accepting everything as is and just moving, moving along. And that is, that, that's a narrative here in the U.S. we struggle with. What does justice look like? What does peace look like? Which one are, are we going to value civil dialogue or are we going to value honest dialogue? And what, what do the two things do? I had the, I had the, I would call it the luxury to be able to study some of this academically. I had the luxury to be able to see this play out in real life and just be a lifelong learner and be able to use that as a, a form of self-understanding and exploration. But I absolutely do connect it to faith and parent, my parents. The faith piece of it is the name Huck is, um, it's the equivalent of civil rights. Like your right to do something. It is my Huck to do this. It is my right to do this. And my name, Nehira Huck, my parents could not have like, they either set me up to fail or succeed, right? The name Nehira Huck means the radiance of like justice, the radiance of right. Like, like you're you're showing that, you're illuminating that. And I love that that's my name now. Didn't quite get that at the time. And I'm like, all right, it's a good thing they probably didn't name me Chastity because God knows what I would have done in high school instead. Like I could have gone entirely the opposite direction. And I do credit them giving me the space to, giving me the strong roots, but also the, okay, you're going to be a tree and we're going to figure out what that tree will be. And there were definitely times they tried to prune that tree into a totally different form, but that basis of love and ultimately coming back to you came from something bigger than yourself. And when this piece here, this, this thing here in this world that we're doing is done, you will go back to that. I gave a three-year-old version of that to my daughter this morning. Like that's fundamentally what still keeps me a person of faith, despite all my other issues with the practices. I read somewhere that you said my parents told me at a young age that I would have to work twice as hard to get half as much. Was that something early on that you, there's a sense of injustice there, but you accepted it. You are going to work twice as hard. We grew up in a household where the news was always on, there was always a newspaper. And I remember this also that on Staten Island, we got the New York Times and the Staten Island Advance. And we were one of the few households that did that. Everybody else got the Staten Island Advance. They didn't need to know what the people in the city were thinking. One of the things I remember noting was at the fall of the Soviet Union, 
the front page of the New York Times was all about it. The Staten Island Advance had it on section B. The entire A section was all parochial local news. What was happening with the garbage dump at the time, all of that. And I remember that contrast. I mean, like, oh, I feel connected to this other, other greater part of the universe and the world in a way many people around me don't. Then as I recall, you go to high school in the city. Mm-hmm. Is, this, is this right? So you're getting on the Staten Island Ferry. This is also such a... I took a it, boat to school, Scott, from the age of yeah. 13 to 17. That's an incredible thing. The imagery is great that you're going to a different body of land. Literally a different land. I don't think I really realized what my high school commute experience did for me socially and culturally and awareness until well after college, when I realized how not the norm that is. We had a much smaller cohort coming in from Staten Island to that high school because of the distance. And we had a section on the ferry that we would always sit on. So even in this bigger pond, like I found smaller community connections with people that had a similar life experience. Like we were sharing this experience together, different backgrounds, but the shared experience was what, what worked. That's the piece that I really have carried forward though. The idea of there are things that can be different about you. If you share experiences, that's what creates bonds and community. And I did have to make a choice um, as an adult to totally do a different version of community that in some ways my parents felt like was rejecting them and rejecting everything they had learned and, or that they had tried to give me. And what was that specifically? How did that manifest itself? I told them I wanted to b- marry a black Muslim doctor. You tell me which part of that was the rejection of them. <laughs> Listen, I didn't, th- I didn't think it was going to be the, the Muslim or the doctrine. Truth, based on how they raised me or they, they told me, and based on so many of the stories and the traditions in Islam, the first, the first followers of Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad, were Khadija, a woman, and Bilal, the enslaved man, the black enslaved man that was manumitted, right? So these are stories that I've been told as part of my heritage, right? The idea of, you know, even... Fast forward, like Malcolm X, this this opened his eyes to the idea of going to Hajj and seeing people mixing and melding regardless and in a, in a space, a small space where your economic status, your racial status isn't supposed to matter, right? To me, that is the ideal of what this faith is supposed to be doing. And the faith fails because of people and politics, but that's not, that's still the goal of the faith. And then to realize that my parents struggled with that themselves. That was hard. You mentioned that your husband's parents became, they become Nation of Islam during the time of Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali's conversion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my husband has strong memories of while Muhammad Ali was off making his statements and winning his bouts, that he would still come to the Eid and Friday picnics and celebrations and sit there at a, at a folding table and have a line of little kids and he would sit there until every little kid got to shake his hand, talk to him and do that. Like he, Muhammad Ali made sure he invested in young black people every chance he got. And that was a big deal to my my husband. Like he felt like Muhammad Ali belonged to him in some way as a young black boy coming out of Oakland. My father-in-law and mother-in-law also uh, followed the path that Malcolm X and others followed of going more into mainstream Sunni Islam at this moment of conversion for Malcolm X, but also a broader connection between American Muslims and Muslims abroad. And my um, father-in-law ended up becoming a 
Muslim chaplain for the California prison system. So the idea of uh, giving spiritual mentorship and support for him at the time was Black men who found themselves in trouble. And there was an era in which Black families had like, oh, yeah, yeah, so-and-so, you know, yeah, he went to prison, came all, he found Islam, got all straightened out. And so like this was, it was not unusual to have Muslim Christian blending in Black families in that generation. And it's very common in Africa too. Like Africa, animism, Islam, and Christianity up until recent times have coexisted without issue. And Malcolm X's own conversion experience came in prison. Mm -hmm. And that autobiography, co-written with Alex Haley, is one of the great American books. It's raw, it's direct, it's a way of speaking frankly that I think many of us, until we read it, haven't been exposed to. And I, I do know this, that many Muslim boys of immigrant descent, right? Like even like my brother being born here, reading that, it was eye-opening for him as a Muslim man, but also as an American of like, whoa, whoa, wait. This is a whole other piece of America that I don't know about. I grew up around cops, kids. And, you know, that experience of going and spending Christmas with cops and their families and, you know, my friend's dad making comments about the challenges he's having are because, you know, people are a way they are because of their skin color. I just I remember that being at the other end of the table, kind of as background noise. And I remember looking at my friend and thinking, Hey, so why is your dad saying that? Like, I don't understand. She's like, oh, well, they just, you know, things are really hard when you're working the beat. This is how him and his friends blow off steam. And I was like, okay. And, you know, we eat dinner. I remember another party. It was a potluck and it was at someone's house. And the parents were upstairs and kids were running around downstairs. And this Pakistani-American kid who's probably like eight years old shares a joke that now I know is deeply racist and offensive. Would you like me to tell you this joke? Of course. Yeah. He's like, hey, how does a Black person do the Macarena? And I was like, how? And he's like, well, he's up against a cop car and he mimics, you know, the hands up. And instead of a Macarena around the waist, he puts them behind himself as if he's doing handcuffs. So I go home and I'm like, hey, listen to this. And I do the whole thing and my dad's face collapses and he looks at me and he sits down he's like here come sit with me here sit down and I remember I'm sitting on my younger brother's car bed yes it was a bed in the shape of a car and I'm sitting there on his car bed with ghostbuster sheets and my dad says hey so what did you think that joke was I'm like mm. he's like well he's saying the joke is saying that black people are only criminals and you know that's not true and if you hear stuff like that, not only should you not repeat it, but you should tell their friends that's not okay. Those are the conversations, like if those don't happen, you just continue on absorbing everything in the small world around you. And, you know, literature, like I said, the, the autobiography of Malcolm X, my brother was like, oh, whoa. This is another way of being Muslim, but a deeply American thing that's tied up in that sense of Islam. After a break, Nayira tells how her parents, despite their racial sensitivity, were challenged by her dating and ultimately marrying a Muslim, yes, but a black Muslim. Stay tuned for a Romeo and Juliet story with a happy ending. I'm 28 when I meet this guy on a blind date, 
And I didn't know who he was. I knew he was black. And I was, you know, I just finished helping elect the first black president of the United States. So like, oh my God, things are so great in this country. And I'm like, of course, yeah, sure. You know, I'll, I mean, I, I should stop exclusively dating people from Punjab, Pakistan that my parents might introduce me to. Like, like seriously, there's a bigger world out there. I need to do my own thing when it comes to my romantic life. And it's okay to do that was a nice realization too. And so I, I meet this guy who I quickly realized within six months that this is something I want to build a life on. That not, not even that, I mean, yes, he's a unicorn and amazing and so cute. But the thing we were was something I wanted to build a life on. And what we brought out in each other was like, oh, this is, this is forward for me. I don't want to be looking backwards and replicating. This, this fits what I'm becoming. And um, I remember telling my parents I went out with this guy. And they're like, oh, well, what's his name? And I gave him his name. I'm like, oh, he sounds Arab. I'm like, wow, that, you actually seem like okay with that? Oh, wait till you hear this. And I was like, no, no, he's not. He's, uh, he's Black American. I'm like, oh, don't say anything. We go out to lunch. We sit down. And my dad's like, you know, um, great that you're meeting people on your own. And this is good. Um, but I uh, want you to know that this is, uh, you know, you can keep him as a friend. That's just being black in our family and it's just not going to work. You, you want to relate long-term relationships that's going to work and, you know, with the family. And I said, actually, I feel far more comfortable in black masjids than I do in the one that you guys raised me in. I was like, the gender issues that you carried over from small town Pakistan, they don't have that. Women mix freely. And they're like, okay, well, you know, that's not what this is about. I, I, and it started a long series of discussions about what it means to be minority in America from the biracial, from the, the caste perspective. My parents, again, coming from South Asia, have a deep understanding of how people fit into society based on your circumstances of where you're born, not just because of the poverty and the failing systems, but because of what used to be literal caste structure that dictated your life. And it, I mean, they couldn't put words to it. It was this fear this fear and challenge and all the things that they had done to keep their daughter safe, all of the smart things they learned the hard way. And they're like, you're not doing that. And I confronted that with my family and my parents. And I kept coming back to, I'm who you raised me to be. And this is what Islam tells us. Like, I didn't bring you some dude off the street. I brought you the son of an imam. <laughs> who is an American-born Muslim, who goes through the world with a similar mindset. Like, what, what else do you want? This is so interesting to me because you juxtaposed two stories of your dad feeling like he had to correct you on something. And the first story about the inappropriate humor, I feel he could not have been more gentle he was not accusatory. He was not irate and presented it in a way that you immediately bought into it. And that was a step in your maturation. Then the second story, he's not what story gurus would call the center of good now because he's restricting you from your path to love. But love was not what they were told you follow to, as the North Star. That's not what they were told or raised or even necessarily what they raised us. They, we, we definitely had a sense like, oh, you know, your aunt over there who married for love at 19. Yeah, you see how that worked out. Marry for practicality 
right? Love grows, which my parents, I think, are right about. Like, love grows. Like, you are thinking lust, and like, they're like, 28-year-old, what do you know that you think this is going to work? My mom said, don't think that because America elected a Black man that it's not racist. Don't try to run a civil rights movement through our family. She wasn't wrong. Yeah, yeah. They weren't right, but they were not wrong in what they were expressing and trying to solve for. They just didn't have the tools or I think the sense of hope to see beyond their own experiences. And, and even for the people who are trying to have their life be one of continual growing and learning, uh, there are there still limits to how much of, of what one comes from one can jettison in favor of even something that intellectually one thinks is some that you think is better. And congratulations to you. They raised a strong daughter. They got what they asked for, Scott. But it also sounds like in all of this, you never threw out the, the baby of your faith with the bathwater of this disagreement and seeing things differently from your parents. You still kept your faith. Is that correct? Yes. And that's still surprising to me sometimes. All of the elements around me would have encouraged a dramatic rebellion, you know, like that American thing that happens in college. Like I said to my parents, I don't have to choose. You are making me choose between family and love. Family and this guy. That is a false choice. That I learned actually probably at somewhere along the line in a rhetoric class of like recognizing false choices and straw man arguments. And I tried all of that I learned as a diplomat. I like tried to set up meetings. And I tried to like prep and counsel. I gave my then boyfriend a briefing memo before he met my parents. None oh. of that oh. stuff. Oh. None of that stuff of how we intellectualize and process and solve problems on a systemic scale works on that individual level. And it's the heart-to-heart -heart connection. It wasn't until my then boyfriend and I went to see, we had gone to premarital counseling, like, good, you know, let, let's learn about stuff um, that was secular. And then we found a young guy who had been recommended by a local imam in the DC area. He's like, oh yeah, this guy's doing some really good stuff. He's converted from Judaism to Islam and his wife is Sudanese. I think, I think you should talk to him. And apparently he's like, his thing was art therapy. So it's blend of many worlds. And I'm talking to him and he's like, why do you want to marry this? I was like, this, this thing that we have now, I want to keep it. And I said it with this same level of intensity. He goes, you're not going to be able to. So I, my boyfriend puts his hand on my knee, like, like, listen to the guy, like, hear him out. You're getting all worked up. And uh, he does that a lot. And then he, the guy says, <laughs> um, it's not going to be exactly this. It's going to change except that it's going to change. This is a foundation, but it will change. And you will both have to change and you will have to keep coming back together. Like, okay, got it. The second one was that he's like, and you're trying to talk to her parents as if like another dose of logic, another dose of reason, just the right set of words is gonna make a difference. He's like, it's not. What the prophet Muhammad tells us, it's heart to heart, open your heart to them and show them by example how to open their heart to you. And I was like, he brought religion into this. <laughs> he brought in the apply what you say you believe in, right? We get prophets and examples of good people 
apply that. This is what it means. He was right. And you can find any number of things like that from Buddha to Jesus, like, but that idea of, it was more than leading by example, right? Like it's the idea that many faiths teach about openness and your heart. And like that, that connection is what we are building societies and justice on. And he's like, do that in your family. Give them grace, give them space. And I'm like, is this Muslim guy telling me to turn the other cheek? Because I don't think Muslims do that. That's not our thing, right? Like, Muhammad went to war for a couple of reasons. And I'm like, oh, that is what he's telling me. Okay. Okay. And, and that is more my husband's orientation as a human being anyway. And it, and it worked. I started to see them with kindness, with mercy, with understanding. And it brought me back from the brink. I also had a partner who was very much like, our door's always going to be open. Like our door's always, the train may leave the station, but the door's always going to be open. Like I was ready to burn it all down and we didn't. And now I have two children that my parents are obsessed with. I mean, they already had that piece in them. They know intellectually racism is bad, but they have truly understood and unpacked what it means and what they can do differently for someone they love and they see now in blackness in America, someone they love. It's not these other people. And it, it's been a journey for all of us, but it's, it's truly the application of a principle that came, that actually comes from multiple faiths, has given me the life that I love today. I think this is such a beautiful story. If you could get everybody and they were willing to do it, everybody to experience one work of art because you think it would be transformative for them, what would that one experience be? The song from Bulle Shah, who was the poet, and it's called Bulla Ki Jana, B-U-L-L-A, P-K-I, Jana, J-A-N-A. And there's a couple of versions available on like Spotify, YouTube, um, and you can see the Rabbi Shergal one. I think what's cool about that is it's a lament of Bulla, the person. Gijana, like, what do I know? What do I know as a man? What do I know? And that's the song. And you can see with all these versions of it out there, the evolution of, with music, the idea, the contemporary, the more traditional, but like that idea and the language is still there. I pledge to you that I will listen to this and I thank you for recommending it. In times of stress, is there some quote that you keep coming back to that comforts you? It's actually um, from Christian scripture. There but for the grace of God go I. And it, it goes back to how I've come to understand my place in society and my family history of I could have been some other little kid. And I'm very blessed with the the people I've had in my life that I still have, the opportunities, and there but for the grace of God go I. And with that comes responsibility. Nayira Huck, it is such a delight always to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now for my sermonette in my homily opinion. Nayira's summer pilgrimages to Pakistan joyously connected her to her family's heritage 
but also introduced her to the sights of slum children baking in the streets. There but for the grace of God went she. And the horror of such images propelled her to, in her words, wish to make change. But not everyone, seeing want in the midst of abundance, seeks change. The 1973 short story, The Ones Who Walked Away from Amelis, describes a utopian paradise where everyone's permanent happiness is predicated on one child being kept forever in darkness and squalor. Residents of Amelis learn this fact when they come of age, and most agree that one anonymous child's suffering is an acceptable price for their collective joy. Not all do. As the title suggests, some walk away. Author Ursula K. Le Guin called her short story a psychomyth. I first heard it discussed on Sam Harris's Waking Up app as a thought experiment. And I recalled Amelis when reading the New York Times reports that thousands of undocumented children in all 50 states now labor in hazardous jobs for long hours at little pay, performing tasks such as mopping up slaughterhouses. They are victims north of the Mexican border of a legal loophole meant to protect the young from harm south of the border. Children taken in custody get sponsors who then often put them to work. So an ill-considered law's unintended consequence results in lifelong damage to teens. Many suffer severe injuries. Most never finish school. But where this Dickensian horror connects to Le Guin's story and Nayera's experience is that according to the Times, the adults in the communities where this is happening look the other way. Reports the Times, government officials in state capitals and in Washington allow it to happen. Yes, why would politicos in either party who depend on campaign donations from corporations who profit from this abuse work to stop it? And how many who've made this devil's bargain consider themselves good Christians? To them, the children's suffering doesn't trump the profits and power that they gain. In my homily opinion, they who'd condemn a child to darkness dwell in darkness themselves, and even the some who walked away from Amelis left that isolated innocent suffering still. May all seek light to light the way for all, or as young Naira put it, make change. That's our show. We'd love to hear from you. So you can email us at egonspodcast at gmail.com or on social media at egonspodcast or post a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to all ye gods and goddesses, Dawson McCron, Robin Rose Valentine, Selena Lauterer, and her lady archers at Artemis Independent. I'm Scott Carter, and until next time, safety and kindness to all. <laughs>